In the name of the Father, the Son, and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Well, we have been, uh, we have been thinking together this fall about walking. We have now completed our walk to Bethlehem very successfully. We have been walking with Jesus through the Gospel of Mark. We've been talking about walking. We've been walking the talk. Walkie-talkies, we're all walkie-talkies. Uh, and here on Sunday morning, of course, we have noted that our spiritual health is really not that much different than our physical health, which is to say we can't just think our way to health, whether it's physical or spiritual. To borrow Nike's phrase, we have to do it. So we have been looking at these core exercises for the soul. We began by talking about worship, this regular practice that gets us out of ourselves, ecstatic, helps me to realize it's not all about me. It's not all up to me. Then we went on to realize that we have to continue to grow spiritually at every new phase of our lives. So I have to read the scriptures, but I also have to use my God-given brain, my reason. I have to listen to the experiences in my life, the people and the events through whom God wants to continue to speak to me. And then last week we talked about the importance of serving others, this model of true greatness that Jesus has given to us. When we do it to the least of these, he says, we do it unto him. And so this morning, uh, appropriately on Commitment Sunday, we come to the final of the four, and that is giving. The connection between money and the spiritual life, which may sound like an odd topic, right? I mean, worship, scripture reading, serving others, these all sound very spiritual. But money? So here's the thing. On the first Christmas morning, when we say the word became flesh and dwelt among us, the line between what is physical and what is spiritual was forever blurred. The spiritual became physical. The word became flesh. That means that what I do on Monday morning is every bit as spiritual as anything we ever do in this space on Sunday. That means that the limited God-given time that I have on this earth and what I do with my aging body and what I do with the money that has been entrusted to me in this world, those are all spiritual things. In the Gospels, Jesus actually talks more about money and material things than he ever does about worship or prayer or scripture study, all combined, making it clear that my relationship with money can either deepen or sabotage my spiritual walk. A while back, I heard about an accountant by the name of Dan Hutchinson. Um, it was during uh, tax return time, so he was preparing some of his clients' tax returns. Don Johnson, our own Don Johnson, knows a lot about this. And Dan said, you can tell a lot about a person by their tax return. 
It's sort of a financial selfie, he said. Well, I had never thought of that in that way, and I was intrigued. It turned out that Dan was actually working on a book at that point about the tax returns of presidents. And as you're probably aware, most of our former presidential candidates uh, have made their tax returns available to the public. That's also true of vice presidential candidates. Um, and so most of those are available online. So he went back and he looked at one of our VPs from a number of years ago. I won't tell you who it was. Um, and this was actually his tax return from a few years before he became uh, 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 the vice president. Digging a little deeper, he found that a very high mortgage interest deduction relative to this man's income. The man had an income of about $200,000, which is fairly modest for most of our presidential and vice presidential candidates. But a very high mortgage interest deduction relative to his income. So I'm guessing, Dan went on to say, that since that is the case, we will also find a very low level of charitable contribution. Sure enough, this former VP gave all of $300 a year to charity. $300 on a $200,000 salary. That's about one-tenth of 1%. One Dan went on to say that he and his associates had developed something that they call a tax return credit score, a tool that lenders could use to analyze a person's ability to repay a loan. Put simply, the greater the disparity between what they were paying in mortgage interest and what they gave to charity, the greater their risk of defaulting on their loan. On the flip side, Dan went on to say, we found that people who were generous with their charitable contributions were, at least according to their tax returns, um, living within their means and showing evidence that they were thinking about others through their generosity. Those people, it turns out, were significantly better credit risks. I found all of that fascinating. I am aware that many of you would have preferred a cute story about a beloved pet at home. <laughs> I know this. And that is the point. Money is just as much a spiritual commodity. In fact, it struck me that what Dan was saying in accountant's language is precisely what Jesus was saying in the words that Ray just read to us, Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, I'm sure all of you noticed that Jesus did not say, where your heart is, there your treasure will be. That may be true, but that's not what he said. He said, where your treasure is. In other words, in our culture, money is not a neutral commodity. It has a spiritual power of its own. How I use my money not only reflects who I am, it shapes who I will become. Where I spend my hard-earned money will help to determine how invested I am. So now let's be blatantly honest. 2021 is going to be a very significant year in Greenfield's life. 
a real transition year. Is the commitment that I am making this morning, does it say, wait and see? Or does it say, I am all in? Because the simple truth is that how invested you are will be as important as anything that the candidate who comes here next week will say or do. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. So let's also be honest and say that this line of thinking is completely countercultural because every voice around us is telling us the exact opposite. That if you just have bigger and better, nicer and cooler stuff, you will be happier, you will be more fulfilled. Miroslav Volf is a theologian at my old seminary. He spent a lot of time working on what he calls a theology of joy and the good life. The good life, a phrase that has been around forever. Um, it's been the title of a British sitcom, films, novels. It's been the title of songs recorded by artists all the way from the crooner Tony Bennett to the rap artist Kanye West. It's sort of shorthand for what makes for a fulfilling and satisfying happy life. And again, let's just be honest and say that for many in our society, um, that is defined by having ample money and more material possessions. He who dies with the most toys. In the Bible, this line of thinking is uh, at least partially represented by the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes. He's sometimes referred to as the teacher. I think of him of a guy, as a guy who has lived long enough to have pursued a number of different avenues to happiness, one of which is the accumulation of more things. So he writes, I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I also had great herds and flocks, more than anyone who had before me who had been in Jerusalem. I gathered for myself silver and gold. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. And it's very clear that the teacher expects from this the good life. But if you are familiar with the teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes, what you hear over and over again in that book is the familiar phrase, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. In other words, it was all futile and just blowing in the wind. It turns out he discovers that pursuing pleasure as more and more things means that satisfaction will always be more elusive and a deep spiritual life will be impossible. I didn't say unlikely, because let's face it, all of us would like to say it's not either or. It can be both and, right? Unfortunately, that's not what Jesus says. He says you cannot serve God and wealth. In other words, when I make money my primary goal, it becomes my God. And God becomes just a means to an end, which is why the prosperity gospel is the number one heresy in America today. So if happiness really cannot be found on eBay, if it doesn't come in yet another box from Amazon, 
what are some of the components of a good life? We could be here all morning, but since every good sermon has three points, let's just talk about three of those. The first of them goes back to the old Stoic philosophers in, in Greco-Roman times who believed that the secret of the good life was not found in acquiring things that you don't yet have, but rather in learning to desire what you already have. So how do we cultivate a desire for what we already have? Well, the answer is surprisingly simple. And we actually talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Wanting what you already have comes from giving thanks for what you already possess. Here is a very simple, silly example. Back in 2012, a colleague of mine replaced his 2006 V6 Ford Mustang convertible with a new Ford Mustang GT convertible. His midlife crisis car with its powerful 420 house horsepower V8 engine left him grinning from ear to ear every time he got behind the wheel and listened to that rumble. Two years later, um, two years after he bought the car, Ford redesigned the Mustang, <laughs> giving it an independent suspension system, a really cool grade, uh, grade up to the interior, and a nice remodel to the exterior, along with 15 more horsepower. Several years later, they bumped uh, up another 25 horses. With each redesign, his Mustang didn't seem nearly as cool as it had been. I do not know if all car manufacturers do this. I know some of you know this better than me. <clears throat> but apparently Ford will let you go online and design the car of your dreams. And then you can order it from a Ford dealer. So. In the fall of 2014, he went online and he built himself a brand new Mustang just to see what it would cost. But he resisted the temptation to buy it. His old Mustang was all of two years old. It was still under warranty. He has gone through that same process, he says, several times since. Every time he thinks seriously about pressing the order button, he goes and sits behind the wheel he starts it up, listens to the purr, and he says to himself as a mantra, I am so grateful for this car. Now, I am not telling you that you should not buy a new car since we just turned in our old van and have now our retirement car. I am saying that I think the Stoics were right. As I give thanks for what I have, I find a freedom and a contentment that always chasing after the new and improved simply cannot offer. The second key to experiencing the good life is to live purposefully. That is to live with a purpose greater than yourself. Viktor Frankl was an Austrian neurologist and psychiatrist. He was Jewish, and so he was arrested by the Nazis and sent to the concentration camps. He survived four concentration camps, including Auschwitz. All but one member of his family perished in those camps. 
while he was in those hellish circumstances, he noticed that some of the prisoners woke up every morning with the attitude that they still had something to live for. Typically, that was a sense of meaning they found in helping to serve their fellow prisoners. And so he began uh, to develop a theory which later led to an entire field of psychotherapy. He concluded that people who found a sense of meaning in their lives dealt with even the darkest of circumstances. They were uh, more effective in dealing with depression and anxiety. They were just mentally healthier because they were living for something larger than themselves. So in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, he describes prisoners who were starving, who were freezing, who were forced every morning to go on these long marches to their work sites. Um, he says that as he stumbled through the dark, he would think about his love for his wife. At that point, he didn't even know if she was alive. But that love is what kept him going as he marched through, as he went through those horrible months. In that moment, for Frankel, the meaning was his love for his wife. But he is clear in the rest of the book that that love can also be applied to others who we love and who we live for, which is precisely what Jesus describes when he says, no one has greater love than to give one's life for one's friend. It turns out, ironically, that we find the good life by giving it away, by making life good for others. Which leads to the final key uh, to finding happiness and meaning, and really one of the keys to walking with God, and that is to practice generosity. You know, in the early chapters of Genesis, it becomes clear that in the beginning of time, in the time before time, um, God decided this thing that I am is just too good to keep to myself. I want others to get in on the ecstasy of my kind of aliveness. So the Bible is really clear. God did not have to create. God chose to create. And those same stories also make clear that you and I we have been created in the image of that kind of generous God. So generosity is meant to be a part of the regular rhythm of our lives. We are closer to God when we are generous. But we cannot just think generosity. We have to practice it. So the truth is, for some wonderful people, the most significant thing that could happen in their spiritual growth right now is not another Bible study or a midweek worship service, but a healthy dose of giving. I saw a video a while back that really touched me. Just before Christmas, a filmmaker named Rob Bliss conducted an experiment with elementary age children. They were all eight or nine years old and all of them came from low-income families. As part of the experiment, the children were asked what they would like to have for Christmas. One said a computer. Another said a, a Barbie playhouse. One boy wanted an Xbox 360. Another wanted a new Lego set. Then each child was asked what they thought one of their parents, their mom or their dad, 
would want. My mom would probably want a ring, said one boy. She's never really had a ring. A new car, said another. Watches, jewelry, it was a fairly extensive list. Then the camera caught the wide-eyed astonishment of one of the boys as he watched the organizers present him with the Xbox that he had asked for. And then all of the other children had similar reactions when they received the gift that they had been hoping for. Then things took an unexpected turn. Each child also received the gift that he had indicated his mom or dad would want. And of course, there was a catch. They could only keep one gift, either the one they wanted or the one their parents would have wanted. The video captured what happened next. With little hesitation, each child chose to forego the gift for themselves in favor of the gift for their parents. The, interview, the interviewer asked one of the boys who had wanted the Lego set about his choice. Because Legos don't matter, he replied. Your family matters, not toys, your family. I get gifts every year from my family, said one of the kids who chose a coffee maker for his mom over a new doll for herself. My mom doesn't get anything. Another who chose her mother's gift said, she helps me when I'm sick. She helps me with my homework. She gave me a house to live in, said one of the boys. Now, some of you with children or who have raised children may be surprised by those responses. You may think a lot of the film must, be, must have been left on the editing floor. Or maybe these kids are still young enough to remember something that we old farts sometimes forget. It really is more blessed to give than to receive. How did Churchill put it? We make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. Where your treasure is, your heart will be. Amen.